You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Godfather banking Trojan has deep roots in older code. Fubo TV was disrupted around its World Cup coverage. The Guardian has been hit with an apparent ransomware attack. A threat actor abuses AWS elastic IP transfer. Moldova may be receiving more Russian attention in cyberspace. CISA releases six industrial control system advisories. Ben Yellen looks at legislation addressing healthcare security. Our guest is Hugh Njimanzi of Anomaly with advice on preparing for the holiday break. And criminals are impersonating other criminals in underworld markets. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. Group IB reported this morning that the Godfather banking trojan is currently in wide use against popular financial services worldwide. The researchers say Godfather is designed to allow threat actors to harvest login credentials for banking applications and other financial services and drain the accounts. To date, its victims include users of over 400 international targets, including banking applications, cryptocurrency wallets, and crypto exchanges. The malware is based on the old Anubis Trojan, updated and improved, Godfather is offered in the C2C malware-as-a-service market, and it's distributed in the form of trojanized applications, Group IB says, sold in Google Play. Group IB observes that the case of Godfather highlights how quickly Trojan developers can adapt their tools and stay one step ahead of their Android counterparts. Additionally, it shows how easily available source code, such as that of Anubis, can be modernized and relaunched, especially under the malware-as-a-service model. Significantly, the researchers say, Godfather shuts down on an infected device if it detects that the user is from Russia or a CIS country, the Commonwealth of Independent States still being treated as more or less friendly to Russia. And Godfather seems to have had some success in flying under the incautious user's radar. Group IB writes... By imitating Google Protect, 
Godfather can easily go undetected on infected devices. Unwitting users believe they are being protected by an Android service, but in fact the malicious actors gain access to their banking and financial portal accounts. While Group IB does not have definitive data on the amount of money stolen by operators of Godfather, the methods harnessed by malicious actors are cause for concern. Streaming service Fubo TV reported that it fell victim to a cyber attack last Wednesday that knocked out access to the service during the time of the World Cup semifinal game between France and Morocco. The record reported that at around 9.20 a.m. that day, the company reported an investigation into account-related issues, namely logging into and creating accounts. They reported working to resolve the issue throughout the day, though they acknowledged at midnight that some people were still unable to access the server. The Hollywood Reporter says that a statement from the company released Thursday morning following the incident says that the incident was not related to any bandwidth constraints on Fubo's part, and Fubo TV takes this matter very seriously. Once we detected the attack, we immediately took steps to contain the incident and work to restore service to all of our users as quickly as possible. Service was fully restored by last evening. We deeply regret the disruption caused by this incident in the meantime. The statement has since been updated, noting that disruptions to the service are no longer a concern and that the World Cup final went off without a hitch. The British newspaper The Guardian was hit late yesterday by what appears to have been a ransomware attack. It seems to have affected mostly back-office infrastructure, and the paper says it expects to publish both print and online editions as usual. The Guardian notes that journalistic outlets are being increasingly subjected to attacks by nation-states, but goes on to say that this incident appears to be conventional criminal ransomware activity. Mitiga yesterday released research discussing a new potential threat vector that leverages an AWS functionality known as Elastic IP Transfer. In October of this year, a new Amazon VPC feature was released called Elastic IP Transfer. The function allows for the transfer of Elastic IP addresses between AWS accounts. Something important to note is that the Elastic IP Transfer capability extends beyond the user and even their organization. The EIPs can be transferred between any active AWS accounts. If the correct permissions are enabled on the AWS account of a potential victim, a malicious actor can dive in with a single API and transfer the EIP of the victim to their own account. This is noted to be a later stage attack occurring after initial compromise. Balkan Insight reports that Telegram chatter posted online that represents itself as originating with Moldovan leaders is fabricated. The communications were presented as exchanged among Moldova's president and two cabinet ministers. The ministers and the office of pro-European president Maya Sandu say the content of the alleged conversations is fake, but Lori Turkanyu, Moldova's deputy prime minister in charge of digitalization, says the attacks themselves are real and increasingly sophisticated. The fabricated contents suggested collusion between the government and criminal elements, and the campaign is regarded as a Russian disinformation effort. CISA yesterday released six industrial control system advisories. They cover systems by Fuji, Rockwell, ARC, and Process. 
As usual, operators of industrial control systems should consult the advisories and apply the appropriate mitigations. Sophos has uncovered a scam campaign that's impersonating various criminal marketplaces. The researchers first found a spoofed version of the Genesis market, which asked users to pay a $100 deposit in order to access the site. The real Genesis market is invite-only. This led the researchers to discover 19 other sites set up by the same actor. The sites contained some errors, but they appear professional and appeared prominently in search engine results. The scammer or scammers also advertised the sites on Reddit, and their Bitcoin addresses have received more than $132,000. The researchers believe the scam is designed to take advantage of inexperienced researchers, would-be threat actors, and the generally curious. The researchers found circumstantial evidence tying the scam to a user on a criminal forum with the username Walt Cranston, a portmanteau word that combines the first name of the lead character of the TV show Breaking Bad with the last name of the actor who plays him. So, Walt Cranston is apparently a Breaking Bad fan. He's also apparently himself a meth dealer like his TV hero. He was listed as a meth dealer on several underground marketplaces. Walt Cranston was accused by several members of these forums of setting up scam sites after retiring from dealing drugs. That whole honor among thieves shtick didn't work out in the original TV show either. Good show. Have you seen it? Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. So stay away from Los Pollos Hermanos. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen looks at legislation addressing healthcare security. Our guest is Hugh Njimanzi of Anomaly with advice on preparing for the holiday break. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. As the clock ticks down towards the end of the year and the holidays approach, there is a palpable low-level anxiety that settles in over folks in the InfoSec world. Will we be able to enjoy our long winter's nap, or will there be another big one, an all-hands-on-deck breach pulling us away from friends and family? I checked in with Hugh Njimanzi, founder and president of Anomaly, for his perspective on the holidays as an attractive target. There are some tried-and-true principles that should be sort of the first things to check on your list. There is a notion of defense in depth, and defense in depth really has to do with um, kind of layering your security precautions so that if an opponent gets past one layer, then they run into another one. So basically succeeding at one part of an attack doesn't necessarily get them to the prize. And so it's um, similar to uh, what did they used to call that low jack in cars. You look at a car and if you see that it has some defenses, maybe you move on to the next car. Um, And so if you can layer your defense so that there's multiple different hurdles that someone has to cross, that's a good principle in general. And there's ways to do that. So that's, that's one, one clear um, strategy to adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, an, another thing is that there are precautions that are kind of common sense. So when you're looking at, um, for example, ransomware, then it helps to have a strong usable backup of all the systems that are critical to you so that if those systems are held hostage, your first recourse is to ignore the ransom, wipe those systems, and restore them from a trusted backup. Now, if you're going to do that, it's important that the backup itself not already be infected or corrupted. And it's important that you have confidence that you can restore those backups by actually trying them when there isn't a threat. So that's one example with um, attacks like log4j, what's insidious about them is that they are vectored in through stuff that you already trust from your actual provider vendors. In other words, software that you yourself are installing may already be compromised before it's delivered to you. And so as an organization, you are unaware that you're inserting Trojan horses when you update your systems. And so, for example, in the case of Log4j, given that Apache was infected, then it really wasn't anything that the customer was doing wrong themselves. It's just the fact that Apache itself had already been compromised. Um, And so in, in those kind of cases, there is an approach that I think is important, but not necessarily um, considered a lot, which is that... um, you know, the first obvious thing is to identify where you have those vulnerabilities. In other words, if it's a vulnerability in a tool like Apache, which systems have that deployed? So that part, I think, is fairly common tradecraft. So if you have 12,000 systems, 
then you can do a scan and determine that 10,000 of them have software that can be compromised. Um, so that's good. But if it's the majority of your systems, it doesn't really reduce the problem of how do I focus on the most important systems. And so this is where I would say there is an approach that can be very complementary to simply cataloging where your vulnerabilities are. And that approach is to combine the catalog with um, identifying which systems have had external interactions. And more specifically, if you have relevant threat intelligence, what you want to do is match that intelligence against which of your systems have been accessed. So the idea is to maybe out of 10,000 systems from the full 12,000, you want to know maybe 100 of those have actually had external inter interactions with potentially malicious actors or known malicious actors. And so now you have a much more focused game plan you can put in place, which is let me defend those systems in depth and also let me analyze those systems to see if they've already been compromised or, or something is spreading from those to their neighbors. So again, the idea is not just which systems are vulnerable, but which ones are interacting with external actors. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm curious for your take also on the human side of this. It just you know, preparing the team for the possibility that that something could come along that'll that'll uh, interrupt their break. Right. Um, well, again, some some things are common sense, so. It's important to, um, to stay sort of vigilant and aware so that when you're um, receiving updates, um, you want to do whatever, you want to use whatever tools you have that can verify um, that a particular update does not have compromises that the earlier trusted version didn't have. Uh, that might be easier said than done, but it's a principle to sort of keep people aware of and train them on. With the human side of attacks, which is basically anything that relies on extracting information through tricking somebody on their job, then people always have to be aware that any call they receive or any email they receive or anything that requires clicking may or may not be what it looks like. Sometimes it's easy to spot by looking for grammar flaws and so on. So if you're a, um, what, what should I call it? If you're an OCD grammarian, then those things are going to sort of trigger your antenna automatically. Um, but even if you're not, you should notice anything that looks like probably not written by the company that it purports to be coming from. That's Hugh and Jamanzi from Anomaly. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, interesting article from the folks over at Healthcare IT News. This is written by Andrea Fox, uh, and it's titled Senator Warner Issues Healthcare Cybersecurity Policy Options. Uh, what is going on here with the good senator from Virginia? So, Senator Warner is the co-founder of the Senate Cybersecurity Caucus. Uh, he's also 
been the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So he's a pretty important figure uh, in in uh, the Senate. And he has released a paper on how to improve cybersecurity in healthcare systems, in the healthcare field. Okay. Uh, so he makes a number of recommendations. The biggest, and I think the one that's most noteworthy, is he calls uh, for the creation of a healthcare cybersecurity czar. And that would be somebody who... Uh, evaluates national risk posture in the healthcare industry, figures out how to respond to cyber incidents uh, among health systems, and develops incentives that might help improve healthcare cybersecurity capabilities. Remember when czars were once very controversial as as government figures? <laughs> yes, I do. It's, it's, they're kind of uh, unaccountable bureaucrats. I think czars are kind of back in in favor. Just okay. somebody who can. Fashion. <laughs> yeah, they're back in fashion. It's just somebody who can devote uh, attention to a very narrow uh, issue where, um, you know, even somebody who is the head of CISA, for example, can't focus narrowly on, on the healthcare industry. Well, that was going to be my question. Where would where would be the, the sensible place for someone who's given this task to live? Would that be uh, working with CISA? Who yeah, think? I think it would probably be like a sub-position within CISA. Yeah. Uh, so you just have... Um, you know, one department that focuses on healthcare, and then that's where you put your healthcare cybersecurity czar. Mm-hmm. He also came up with a bunch of different policy recommendations uh, that he thinks should be introduced and passed by Congress. Uh, so things like requiring HHS to perform more regular updates on HIPAA, um, particularly as it relates to new technology, new applications, and consumer devices, uh, a workforce development program that focuses specifically on healthcare cybersecurity, um, minimum cybersecurity hygiene practices for hospitals and health systems, mm-hmm. uh, where you have incentives for compliance and disincentives for noncompliance. Um, addressing the problem of legacy systems, I know that's been a huge issue. Oh yeah, many health systems rely on you know the equivalent of Windows ninety eight in their offices, right? <laughs> uh, and that certainly presents uh, major vulnerabilities. We've certainly seen that um, at the government level as well for. Uh, example, in Maryland, our Department of Health in, in the state was vulnerable to a ransomware attack in, in uh, the winter of 2021, um, largely because we were using legacy systems. His last proposal would be to require a software bill of materials for all software and devices uh, used in uh, healthcare. Yeah. So this is kind of a manifesto uh, for this area of cybersecurity policy. Um, I think it's uh, aspirational. Uh, certainly not going to happen in the next couple of weeks in this current Congress, but uh, he's going to maintain this role as a cybersecurity uh, expert and also uh, with his chairmanship uh, in the Senate. So it's something that I think we should uh, pay attention to in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's good. It's part of my next question, which is someone in his position who sits on the committees that he sits on uh, – what is his ability to push something like this through? How would he, how does he go about that? Well, you hold a lot of committee hearings uh, and get some testimony from experts. Uh, and then, you know, the way Congress works is it's really hard to pass anything. Uh, but you probably try and get this. Uh, does he find something else to slip this into? Exactly. Or? <laughs> yeah. It'll be like the, uh, the shelter for puppies bill and t- uh, tucked in a tiny little provision for healthcare cybersecurity <laughs> okay. policy. Right, right. Uh, but more seriously, this is the type of thing that would be included in more like an omnibus cybersecurity bill. I see. Um, but that's why you present these ideas in the first place. So when that vehicle comes across uh, the Senate, comes in front of a committee and onto the Senate floor, 
you already have a set of proposals that you can kind of log roll into that larger bill. Um, and I think that's what his goal is here, uh, is to set out these aspirational goals and then see how much of it can be attainable, certainly uh, in the next couple of years. Do you spot anything controversial in here? I mean, we I think we're still in a, a mode where it seems like cybersecurity provisions are generally adopted or uh, encouraged in a bipartisan way. Yeah, I agree. I don't see anything that jumps off the page that's going to be, you know, like a shouting match on cable TV news about yeah. any of this. Uh I will say that some of the disincentives for hospital systems, penalties for noncompliance, penalties for not following minimum cyber hygiene practices, you might get pushback from the industry, uh, hospitals and health systems. Right, additional um, regulatory burden. Right, uh, which, you know, certainly I understand, but they're also going to be given incentives for good behavior. So, um, but that's where I would see the area for the most potential pushback. No industry likes to be regulated and likes to be uh, subject to... Uh, non-compliance penalties from the federal government. Uh, And hospitals and health systems are um, powerful influences in Washington. They have some of the best lobbyists out there. Um, So I think that would be uh, the one area that would be particularly controversial. Um, But I wouldn't guess that that would be a burden for overcoming this general policy framework on healthcare cybersecurity. Hmm. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. 
In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.